You are listening to Faithless Brewing, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the Spike Rogue. Each week we design new decks for tournament play. We put our creations to the test and share our findings on the air. The invasion of the multiverse is underway, and that means it's time for our full set review. We take a hard look at the battle mechanic and the best ways to break the siege in Modern and Pioneer. This is part one of our Brewer's Guide to March of the Machine. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. the faithless brewing podcast i'm your host dan shriver coming to you from sunny austin texas and i'm joined today all the way from buenos aires argentina you know him as Mord to light it's emmy sagasti emmy welcome hey how's it going dan all the way from austin texas <laughs> so we're here today to kick off a brand new season of faithless brewing New set means new season, and this is season 18, March of the Machine. We finally got to MAM, and it seems to be firing on all cylinders. First time we have seen a new card in how long? A new, a new card type in how long? <laughs> new card or new card type? Like, this is the first spoiler I've seen since yesterday. <laughs> the first previous season since last week. This is the first spoilers of a new expansion since 14 hours ago. Yeah. Maria, we got a new card type for the first time in 16 years. Wow. My goodness. I don't think it was worth it, personally. We'll get into that. Oh, this, look at that. <laughs> should not look have at been, the spies. These could have just been enchantments. They know they could have been enchantments. But anyway. But we needed Tarmogoyf to become a 9-10. We'll get through all that. We got a lot to get through. Man, they are just blitzing us with previews. Looks like they're going to do the whole set in seven days. They went from no previous to having all previous in seven days. So they are just firing up on all cylinders. You check Mythic Spoilers every few hours and you have five new cards to look at. So Mord and I have done our best to impose some order on this just flood of new cards. We're definitely not going to get through it all today. We're going to have to break this up probably today's episode. will come out on Friday. We'll do the Monday episode, maybe next Friday's episode. See if we can get through all of the good ones for Modern and Pioneer in two or three shows and we'll just dive right in exactly so where do we start what's the first point of impact if i had to guess it would be battles right yeah we have new mechanics so four new mechanics in march of the machine i think it makes sense to just review them all at the top especially because battle is a brand new card type the ninth card type so mord please explain what is a battle or a siege and how does it work Alright, so a siege is a type of battle where you slowly deprive your opponent of resources by sieging. Alright, that's not the answer. So a siege, it's the type that has been provided to the first type of battles we have seen. Right now, siege is a type of battle the same way golem is a type of artifact, and there might be future battles in the, in the future that are just setting up the tone. However, the only type we have right now is the battle siege, in which when you put it into the battlefield, you choose an opponent that's going to protect this battle, this permanent, and you have to try and 
destroyed in a way, but not actually destroyed, just remove the loyalty counters from it, or defense counters, as they're calling it. So, for example, the, the card we have here as our first example, Invasion of Kaladesh, a red and a blue for a battle siege that has four counters. When it enters the battlefield, you put a 1-1 colorless thotter. And once you're able to remove those, folk, those, those four counters via burn spells, combat damage, or abilities that allow you to remove counters, this spell will exile itself and then cast on the other side. So you have to deal four damage to transform this into the other side. That's like the, the TLDR. So it transforms, although it does technically have to exile and get cast. It will enter as a new game object. It will get stopped by Teferi Time Reveler because this is being cast during the resolution of the trigger, which is very awkward. Yeah. But essentially you get a bonus thing on the backside. The bonus thing is often a creature, but not always. It can just be a spell. Uh, this one that more just read out, Invasion of Kaladesh, turns into a vehicle. There's one that turns into a planeswalker. So the backside could really be completely anything you can imagine. The front side, right? The front side is more or less a spell. Is that fair to say? Most of them cast some sort of spell effect. Yeah. I mean, it's like a bad enchantment enter the battlefield most times. Like, it's an instant or sorcery spell attached to an ETB. Items to be around that value, right? Some of them are undercosted, some are overcosted, but most of them seem like on value with an instant or sorcery of the same cost. That was what I initially thought, but I wanted to start with Invasion of Kaladesh because this is definitely not on rate, right? Two mana for a 1-1 Thopter. I mean, this raises a lot of questions for me. Like, it's one of the cheaper battles, so the cheaper ones tend to be more playable, more versatile. We can actually imagine ourselves doing whatever the thing is, but it's not obvious to me what we're supposed to do with this to make it a good use of our time and resources, right? Like, I'm definitely not happy to spend blue and a red for a Thopter. I'll just say that, straight up. Yeah, never. But the next one is not quite as bad. Like, this is an example of one that's severely overcosted. But right down below it, it's just decent. Right, so the next one, Invasion of Asgol, which I've never heard of this place, but I think is an interesting example of the other heuristic. As Mord said, often the battle is just more or less an on-rate sorcery. So this one costs black and a red for a battle siege, when Invasion of Asgol enters the battlefield, target player sacrifices a creature or a planeswalker and loses one life. So we call that an edict effect. Sorcery speed is not great, but it's not that far off what I would expect to pay for an edict that can take out a creature or a planeswalker. And the one extra point of life because just because. Right, so I'm getting something that's worth a card right away for black and a red. And then... I see there's four defense counters on the invasion of Asgol, so I have the option to at some point also attack this. They call that defeating a battle. Hmm. Then I get the backside, which is a creature, the Ashen Reaper. It is a 2-1 menace at the beginning of your end step. If a permanent was put from the battlefield into a graveyard this turn, you put a plus one, plus one counter on the Ashen Reaper. So possibly, you know, if you flip this the same turn that you cast the invasion, you're going to get that counter right away you're going to get a 3-2 menace that gradually gets more and more menacing. So, battles, I actually like them. I don't think... But I tend to like new stuff. Like, I tend to like innovation. I think this is a space that hasn't been explored. I think this is sort of what Planeswalkers should have been, in that if they force you into playing into the board to get additional effects instead of just relying on removal to make sure they are clear. 
So when you're playing a mid-range deck and you're attacking your opponent with like two one ones, you don't feel you're making progress towards winning the game. That game is more than likely gonna end up being won by concession or by overwhelming value. Invasions give a purpose to that combat in the mid-range control deck, which I think is actually a really nice exploration of space that hasn't been seen before. Okay, but you're choosing one specific type of deck, mid-range control, where it's probably worth more to a mid-range deck to get another resource on your side to unlock the back half of the battle. And you don't really care that you're missing an attack, right? You're essentially giving them a four or five loyalty planeswalker that you have to attack, right? That's damage that you could have sent at their face or at their other planeswalkers. No, no, it's not like a planeswalker because they're getting absolutely no value out of it. Like, you can remove it as you cannot. Like, if you only care about the front side of, or if you're not going to be a combat, you are losing the back side, but there's no disadvantage at letting them have it for longer. Okay, so maybe it's not a disadvantage, but it reminds me a little bit of, like, how many times has your opponent played a Ren and Six and you have the option to attack that Ren and Six? It's on four loyalty. Or how many times has your opponent played a Kiora that have it on six loyalty and you're not sure, like, is it actually worth my time to deal six damage to this Kiora? It represents some resources, but maybe I'm better off just attacking them. So there's that's a twofold issue. First of all, I think Brennan 6 is not a good example because it's never 4 damage at Brennan 6. If you're doing 2 a turn, it's going to take you like 4 turns to kill a Brennan 6 instead of 2. Because Brennan 6 is exponentially going up, and so it's nullifying a lot of the damage you're doing, while something like Kyoda or an Invasion is a fixed amount. Like if I'm killing it for 2 every turn, I know it's set in 2 turns. Yeah, it's not an, it's not an exact example i'm just saying like the red and six i don't need to kill it i can imagine a game plan where i just attack their life total but i know that if i do take the time to kill it i get something from it in the red and six example i deny them resources in the invasion example i get myself an extra creature i mean but that's exactly what you're looking for in a game like in most scenarios if you're playing a mid-range deck you absolutely are not gonna care about dealing four points of damage to their face like, I would handsomely trade four points of damage. I would handsomely play a creature that says that I could pay for zero cost, my opponent gains six life. Absolutely. Okay. And most decks are going to play these sort of invasions like they're in the same slot. Okay, so that's mid-range. What about for aggro decks? No, I don't think aggro decks want invasions. In the same way aggro decks want them to want enchantments or artifacts, or literally any permanent that's not a creature. Aggro decks play creatures, or permanents in aggro decks are creatures. So you would, you would say that in general, if you're an aggro deck, it's never worth it to like try to unlock invasions to defeat battles. I don't think you. I don't think you're gonna play invasions. Rather, like yeah, you're not gonna try and unlock them because you're not gonna have them in your deck because aggro decks don't play planeswalkers. So let me give you a scenario. So invasion of Kaladesh, right? <laughs> Let's just say that we've got four of this in our deck. I play on turn one some creature, Silver Raven or whatever, because I'm playing an Unctus deck, right? Yeah. On turn two, I play my Invasion of Kaladesh, I make a Thopter. Now on turn three, I play my signature card, Unctus the Grand Meditect. We talked about this in our yeah. last episode. I now have four points of flying damage that I can deal to their face, or I can deal it to the Invasion of Kaladesh to defeat the battle and unlock Aetherwing Golden Scale Flagship, which gives me this massive flying vehicle. I think you absolutely always attack the invasion, right? Like, there's next turn you're attacking for more than four, almost guaranteed, with only the air wing. 
But you're saying that aggro decks shouldn't do this. I mean, obviously, because I put the Invasion of Kalash into my deck, I, I need to get that value from it. I think if you're playing an Unctus deck, it's super strange that you're going to be playing an aggro deck. I don't think an aggro deck can actually afford to have its value separated in that instances unless it's like a sideboard card like... So if I had to compare battles to a card, it would be like Wedding Invitation. Hmm. Two sides, the second one delayed after a success in the first one. So yeah, if there's an, inv- an invasion with the power of Wedding Invitation, that is like a three-mana invasion that the front side gives you two one-ones, and it, if it flips, it's like an... Sorry, when you play it, it gives you like three one-ones, and when it flips, it becomes an anthem, but you have to deal five damage. Yeah, I think it makes you play. We haven't seen invasions for aggro decks. Most of them either ramp you or access removal or as another way form of two for one. Few of them actually play to the board efficiently. Like the closest is invasion to Kaladesh that makes up one one. I mean, strangely enough, the more expensive battles make more sense in aggro decks because if I spend my first three turns adding creatures to the board, like real creatures, then on turn four, I might be in a position to play a four mana invasion get some effect from it, and then immediately attack and defeat the invasion to get the back half. So if you look at like some of the four and five mana invasions, like I can kind of imagine a nice play pattern where, where I do exactly that. I, I deploy creatures first and plan to invade and win the battle in the same turn. So I kind of get like a big creature with an ETB, if that makes sense, in exchange for giving them life. Yeah. Like there's one they just spoiled like a minute ago that was like two and a green and a white for like plus one plus one to your team. So there's that anthem effect. And then when you win the battle, you get some creature that grows. Right. So is that a good use of my turn on turn four? I mean, no, because it's. But I don't think it's a bad. It's not because battles are bad for creatures. For creature decks, it's in the same way as asking, is the four mana Garrod for Lorwyn, which is the first ever Planeswalker, good for my monogreen aggro deck? No, it's not. Hmm, I see. This is a random and common from the first set where this card is legal. Most of them are going to be unplayable trash or standard cards or limited cards, with the odd exception out. Yeah, that's definitely the theme of this set. I think they said every draft booster will have one invasion in it, so there's a ton of these. They're going to make limited really interesting. Because this is the ninth card type, there are some new considerations, and I just want to like get them out there so we can start thinking about them. Inevitably, we're going to trick ourselves into building a battle deck at some point, so I just want to make sure we've, <laughs> we've checked all our boxes, you know, dotted the I's, crossed the T's. So it is a new card type, and it's very difficult, actually, to interact with these. Yeah. There's two ways to do it. There's the official way, which is attacking with creatures, or dealing direct damage, but you need to have specifically direct damage that says any target. Like Lightning Bolt. Like Lightning Bolt, yes. Um, a lot of the stuff like uh, Unholy Heat will specify a creature or Planeswalker that has nothing to do with battles, right? Those cannot touch a battle. Yes. What about other cards, right? Are these backward compatible with um, flickering effects, for example? That's a nice way. I mean, if it's a spell attached to a permanent, surely it would be great to just blink the invasion over and over again and get the spell effect over and over again. And it turns out there's only a few cards can do that. Flicker Wisp in Modern is probably the cleanest one. So you can imagine a two-mana invasion into a Flicker Wisp, get the invasion again. That That's nice. The best one is probably Mord's beloved Sky Noodle. The Noodle! Yorian Sky Nomad is kind of the last playable blink-any-permanent effect. Um, hmm. So this is 
not going to be possible in, in modern, unfortunately, but in pioneer, maybe we find enough invasions that we like that provide useful spells. And then they just sit on the battlefield until we get the sky noodle and just blink them all and get the spells again. Right. You also have lines with a card that we're going to mention soon, which is render inert that the play pattern of turn two invasion, turn two render inert is what David has described as bone crusher giant. Render inert is a new card from this set. Two and a black sorcery removes five counters from any permanence and draws a card. So it's kind of sole purpose is to defeat battles or kill planeswalkers and draw a card. Exactly. Apart from things that specify battles, you know, there's a little bit that is backward compatible. There's Glissa Sunslayer can take three counters off. Vampire Hex Mage can take all the counters off at once, which is actually kind of interesting. Hex Parasite, Thrill Parasite power conduit i mean these these can move a, a couple of counters off but that's pretty much it in terms of interacting specifically with battles by flickering or pulling the counters off you can use blue bounce effects things that bounce any permanent but not everything right if you think oh hmm. i'll just use teferi time reveler and bounce my invasion no. yeah it doesn't work right teferi does not see battles so just keep that in mind also, because this is not obvious from the way they're worded, you control the battle at all times. You cast the invasion, even though you're the attacker and they are the protector, it's your permanence. And that's super important because if your opponent was able to sacrifice it or something like that, I think it would severely nerf them just because in some matches they, they would be completely unplayable. I think it's important to know that you're always the owner. Yeah, kind of like, uh, almost like an aura curse, right? Like you attach it to them, but it's yours to do with as you like. Yeah. So going forward, we can skip battles till we get to the specific playable ones and go back to one of the returning mechanics that we haven't seen in a while, Convoke. Convoke means that your creatures can help cast this spell. You can tap a creature when you're playing the Convoke spell to contribute one mana of the appropriate color of the creature, or one generic mana. Yeah, generic or the color of the creatures. Convoke has tend to be since Ravnica a Celestia mechanic, but in this set they're doing something a bit strange. They're actually giving it to a lot of colors. Yeah, it's a teamwork mechanic, right? They said this was their top-ranking teamwork mechanic. <laughs> so there, there you go. And I like Convoke. I mean, it's cost reduction. It leads to the potential for free spells. But when you think back of like the history of Convoke, there's not that many playable Convoke cards, which makes me wonder if I'm going to overrate these. Like I, I went through and I looked at all the Convoke cards, and what did we find? Well, Hogak, of course, that's more of a Delve card, but it also has Convoke. Broken. Court of Calling is the one that sees the most play, and I don't think that card is broken. It's like barely playable outside of specifically one deck. Yeah. So Convoke hasn't seen any play lately since the Hogak ban, but... I'm super excited for at least one of the cards printed, which is the one Dan has chosen as the hallmark and the exposé of Convoke, and that's Night Errant of Eos. We have a beautiful 4 and a white, 5 mana in total, Human Knight 4-4, Convoke. When it enters the battlefield, look at the top 6 cards of your library, you will reveal up to 2 creatures with the same mana value, with mana value X or less from among them, where X is the number of creatures that Convoke Night Errant of Eos. So, if you convoke this with 5 creatures, which means you pay 0 mana for it, you get a 4-4 that looks 6 deep and puts up to 2 creatures with CMC 5 or less into your hand. So, just to, just to clarify, it always looks at the top 6 when it ETBs. It always. 
And you can always get a main might and a ballista if all goes wrong. So the X is only determined by... The X controls what type of creatures you're allowed to take out of the top six. Exactly. So I can already see myself dreaming about turn one Thramming Inspector, turn two Wall of Omens, turn three Season Pyromancer, combo Night Errant of Fios, get a solid to enough fury win the game. Alright, I mean that's a very value-heavy line. This costs the exact same as Venerated Loxodon, that's also four and a white to convoke, and that's one of the cards that, you know, has seen a lot of success in Standard, but not in Modern, not in Pioneer. So it's almost like a direct competition between Venerated Loxodon and Knight Errant in terms of if I did all the work to set up a four and a white convoke creature that's a four four, which would I rather have? Would I rather have plus one plus one to all my team, or would I rather have two creatures in my hand? Yeah. I I think I would this I think they're playing a different shells, right? Like the Luxon was in that Luxobot super fast to the ground and I can see this more in a I see this more, in most cases, as a 2-mana 4-4 that looks for 2 creatures with CMC 3 or less. Like, you tap down 2 or 3 creatures, generally 3, and play this as a 2-drop. A creature on turn 1, a creature on turn 2, one of them dies, it's fine, you play a creature on turn 3. That allows you either to combo on turn 3, or alternatively, on turn 4, play a 2-drop and combo with 3 creatures. And a 4-4 is not a small size. Like, it can actually fight most of the creatures in modern pretty efficiently. Like, this is a pretty amazing 3-4-1. Okay, so the fact that it draws cards means you're seriously interested in modern, specifically. Yeah. And, like, I can also see this in Pioneer 100%. Like, turn 1, Thrav, and turn 2, either they saga, they saga and makes a Wall of Omens by turn 4, and turn 3 any creature, try to convoke this on turn 3-4 as a value engine. So I wanted to start with the Knight Errant because I think it's the best of them. I will say that all of the Convoke stuff is attractive, and yeah. I know, knowing myself, that I'm going to overrate them. Like, hmm. they look like they're so free, and yet... So hard. And yet, like, Convoke has not been good, right? Because it is so hard, exactly. It's, it's very hard to keep creatures in play, and if they are in play, you should probably just be attacking with them. This is, like, the party dilemma. It's just not easy to get creatures in play. One of the creatures I think will shine in Pioneer with the Night Errant of Feos is the 1-1 one, one that's like a Raise the Alarm on a stick. That's not actually a Raise the Alarm, but a creature that makes two 1-1s one, with Flash. Resolute Reinforcements, is that what it's called? Yeah, like something like Tron 1, Tron 1, Thraven, Tron 2, Resolute allows you to convoke this on turn 3 just with that and having a spare mana or 2. Either you play a 2-drop and you convoke with 4, or you, have a, or you can convoke this with 3 and play a 1-drop afterwards. But that's the thing, right? Like, that's a weak card. And every time David puts it into a list, I'm like, that's a weak card. Let's cut that card. If you really want to go hard on Convoke, you have to, like, be willing to play Junkers like this, you know, that just add bodies to the board. And I don't know if that's worth it, but... So what I think about what's great about Night Journal of Fears is... So in Pioneer, there's a bit of an issue lacking cards like Ephemerate in that having creatures on board does not... So the lack of efficient ways to utilize your low-budget creatures in Pioneer removes the potential energy some of them have. A season Pyromancer in Modern just standing on itself on a board, it's scary in the presence of Undying Effects or Ephemerate Effect or similar effects that are going to exponentialize its value. That doesn't happen in Pioneer. A 1-2 in Pioneer is tends to just tie a 1-2 until a Yorion pops into the board. These sort of creatures are the ones that allow you to play dirtily creatures because they actually work as a 2-for-1. Your opponent has to kill your Thravens and your Resolute Reinforcements 
is they are afraid of a night run of fears on curb. Because killing or not, turn one throw and turn two resolute informants into this on turn three is seven power on board by turn three for only four mana that actually needs you two cards. Like you play turn, turn one a creature, turn two a creature, turn three a creature, and you use zero resources. The clue gave you a card back and this gave you two cards back. So you have seven power on board for literally free of card advantage. So what I'm hearing from you is, A, this card is actually super powerful. B, don't think you need five creatures, right? It's totally fine to just convoke off two or three creatures as long as you built your deck in such a way that X equals two or three is still likely to get two creatures off the trigger. Yeah. You can spend your third turn paying three mana and tapping two creatures. That's still fine. You get a four or four that just drew two cards. That's insane. Yeah. Even if it draws one card, because my only problem with this is... Of course, you're playing this in like in a shell that's almost collected company like. Failing on this is a lot less terrible than failing on Coco because you're getting a four four at least. Yeah. Like when you miss on a Coco, you pay four mana for nothing. Here, you might pay three mana for a four four that misses. But as soon as you can get one or two, one creature out of the trigger, even if it's a two drop, I think it's great. All right. So Knight Errand of Eos, very good example of Convoke. We're gonna see others that are less powerful than this, but they're all attractive, and you know. The first one they spoiled were all blue, and I'm like, we just did Unctus Week. Unctus with Convoke is very, very attractive to me. So there's going to be some synergies to explore. There's going to be a lot more to say about Convoke as we see more of the cards. So that's a returning mechanic. The second new mechanic beyond battles is called Incubate. Incubate generates an extra game object. We love game objects. How does it work? Well, a creature will tell you to incubate followed by a number. So incubate two, incubate three... When you do that, you create an incubator token and put two or three plus one plus one counters on it. The incubator doesn't do anything, but it has the ability to pay two generic mana and transform it. Then it becomes a zero zero Phyrexian artifact creature. So it's almost like you're getting like a little egg. (laughs) The egg is going to become a two two. You have to actually pay the two mana to crack the egg. But once you do that, it's transformed. It's actually, it's not even summoning sick at that point. Um, You could just attack right away with your... Zero zero Phyrexian that has two plus one plus one counters on it. So the Kleenex example is this card, Norn's Inquisitor. One and a white, creature Phyrexian Knight. It's a one-one. When Norn's Inquisitor enters, incubate two. So you're gonna get that one incubator token with two plus one plus one counters on it. Norn's Inquisitor also says whenever a permanent you control transforms into a Phyrexian, it gets an additional plus one plus one counter. I actually like this, but it- if only it was cost two mana and it had like make a one one that if you pay two it became a two two. It feels so clunky as a two mana one one. I know it's just off curve. It's undersized. If this were actually three, but Inspector, my gosh, that would be so good, right? Why can't we ever get better Swami Inspector? All right, so where do you rank incubators compared to all the other game objects? So I think incubators might be the one of the most powerful game objects, like, by a mile. I think my ranking for the game objects might be a bit weird. So, game objects, we have Treasure, Food, Clue, Blood, and what's the new name? Egg? I'm going with Egg. Egg, Egg. yeah. So I think Treasure is first, Clue is, is second, Egg is third, Blood is fourth, and Fifth is Food, of course. I would put blood ahead of clues for sure. Um, See, that's why I said mine was going to be a bit spicy. 
I, w- I would say blood is ahead of clues, and I think incubators are probably worth more than clues as well. Do you agree with that? So would I rather pay two mana for a two-two or two mana for a for a card? I think that really depends on the deck you're playing, right? It does, and I think it also depends on whether the two-two has haste or not. Like it has haste if you're attacking. If if you're just defending, it doesn't matter that it has haste. What I like about the incubate is that any other game object you can actually pay for it at instant speed, which I assume you would not have been able to, just based on the power of previous cards. Mm. Also, Nurse Inquisitor has one of the best cards I have seen in years. It's goddamn amazing. Yes. It reminds me of the Knights of Rain in Star Wars if they had actually been done successfully. <laughs> Knights of Ren, but it works. Knights of Norn. So yeah, paying two to get a guaranteed 2-2 creature, but that's all it can be. Unless you're going to do some funny stuff, right? Like you can proliferate, you can do all kinds of weird yeah. stuff with manipulating the size of these counters. Super relevant to notice, these are not actually 2 twos. these are zero zeros with 2 plus 1 plus 1 counters. Yeah. So those are things to at least take into consideration. We should also note on the card Norn's Inquisitor that there is a Phyrexian tribal theme in this set, and this, this could be part of it, right? It's a Phyrexian, it generates Phyrexians. Yeah, this creates two Phyrexians, which with a lot or anything actually adds up. And that leads us to our actually third new mechanic. Yeah, third new mechanic, actually. We had battles, we had pop, we had, it's not populate, it's incubate, and we have backup, which, for example, we can see in Doomscar Warrior. Doomscar Warrior, 2 and double green for a 4-3 human warrior with backup 1. Backup reads, when this creature enters the battlefield, put X plus 1 plus 1 counters on target creature. So if with backup 1, you put 1 counter on target creature, and that creature gains all the abilities below backup. In this case, Doomscar Warrior reads backup 1, trample when this creature deals combat damage to a player of battle, look at that many cards from the top of your library, you may reveal a creature or land card from among them, put him into your hand. So when Domscar Warrior enters the battlefield, target creature gets a plus one plus one counter, trample, and whenever this creature is combat damage to a player, look at that look at that many cards and put a creature or land into your hand. It provides another creature with counters and all its abilities for a turn. So the way they used this design was actually pretty cool. Like they put it on a lot of creatures that cost four or five mana and have really dangerous like attacking triggers. So the way it will play out is you're gonna play your Doomscar Warrior. And they're going to see, okay, I don't want the Doomscore Warrior hitting me. I'm not going to just let them punk me every turn and get a free creature. And yet, if they have a removal spell, they first have to use it on the creature you backed up, right? Let's say you, yeah. you play a three drop first. You play the Doomscore Warrior, back up your, I don't know, what is it? An old growth troll or something or some, some random three drop. Hmm. Now that's threatening to draw a card. It's going to get trampled. It's going to get bigger and it's going to hit them and draw a card. So they have to use a removal spell on that first. And then you still have Doomscore Warrior, which hasn't actually gotten you a card yet, but it's threatening to, and it demands another answer from them. Yeah. So it transforms a creature that might... So this works super well with ETV creatures or creatures that are not threatful on its own, like... Um, what's a good 3-drop that... Ch- so, for example, a Skyclay Apparition. You have a Skyclay Apparition on 3, and turn 4 you play a Doomscar Warrior. Now you have a 3-3 three, three that you, if your opponent isn't able to block it, they actually have to waste a removal on a creature that was already a 2 for one to stop you from looking at the top three and placing a creature or land from among them into your hand. And not only that, they then have to deal with the fourth three that Scastropolis is about to do it again next turn. 
they work super well with casing malcontents. <laughs> no, sorry, not malcontents. Casing. Sure, why not? Why not casting malcontents? What's the name of the three mana two three that has haste and provides things with haste? Oh, with the reckless stormseeker. Oh gosh, you could get two triggers in one turn. My God. You play turn three stormseeker, this on turn four, and now your opponent has to kill that stormseeker because you're gonna swing for a bunch. And that's an amazing curve, actually. So you're gonna swing for seven damage, eight damage. You're gonna get two triggers. You're gonna get two more creatures off the top of your deck. On everything with trample. Yeah. The implementation is cool. I think the mechanic is actually pretty cool. It's just, it's on expensive creatures, so they're kind of on curve toppers, so they're not going to compete for slots in that many decks, but I do like them. I like the idea of it. Yeah, I absolutely really enjoy backup, and I think it's one of the best ball mechanics in a while, especially with the creatures we're seeing all heavily in the curve, all creatures that would generally suck because you're never connecting with a 4-mana four 4-3. But forcing your opponent to use a removal on its way is one of the best ways to try to connect with a 4-mana 4-3. So I applaud this design. Yeah, they kind of have haste, they kind of have UTBs, depending on how you look at it. Exactly. It's a zero haste. Yeah. Split over two cards, which is nice. Yeah. Which leads us to finally go and look into the specific card from this set. We haven't selected that many, we have been... We're actually just going to mention the most playable ones. We might not get through all of them today, but at least we're going to clear the early drops. We're not even going to come close to getting through all of them. No. (laughs) No, no. Today we're just like covering the mechanics. Kudos to the design team for for sweet new mechanics. And we'll just see what we find. Starting off with the cheapest cards, as we do. So, Elspeth's Might. Tell us about it, Dan. Elsmith's... Elsmith? 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 Elsmith! Elsmeth Spite? Elspeth Smite. <laughs> Elspeth Spite, yeah. <laughs> three damage. It deals three damage to target attacking or blocking creature. If that creature would die this turn, exile it instead. It costs a single white. It's an instant. This is the biggest version of this effect. We tend to think yeah. of this as only for limited, right? Damage just to attackers and blockers. It's always too expensive. It's just too whatever. But this is actually great rate, and it exiles. Is this able to actually see... Competitive play? Like, is 3 damage enough? Have we reached the point where this is actually valuable? Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Hmm. I mean, probably not for modern. Probably. For pioneer, like, it's great when it works until suddenly it doesn't work and you curse the day you put this in your deck. (laughs) If it misses, if it forces you to let them flip their graveyard trespasser or something because you couldn't actually proactively kill it, you're going to just be so angry at yourself for playing this. Hmm. But if it's killing my Venge Vines, I'm going to be so angry. So there's that. Uh, All right, just a card to be aware of. We'll see. Never seen this effect at this cheap of a cost for this big of an effect. So always good to keep an eye on those. The next card is an honorary one drop. Honorary one drop, we can both agree, might be a bit, I don't want to say delusional, just optimistic. Well, here's the thing, Ward, there's no other one drops. Like, I've looked for the <laughs> entire spoiler, there's no one drops in this set. There's literally nothing else. So, if we consider this a one drop, we have two. Yeah, exactly. Like, All right. We got to have something that costs one mana. Everything else is like a team up seven mana for a ape and a fibblethip or something. I don't know. <laughs> this is a card you might actually cast in a duel of magic. So, so I will talk about briefly about the referee squad. Two and a blue homunculus. It's a two, two with convoke. Has vigilance. And when referee squad enters the battlefield, 
tap target creature and opponent controls and put a stun counter on it. So this is like a frost links. It freezes it for a turn. Very, very much a limited effect, a limited stats of creatures, and yet it has convoke. So if you're going to build a convoke deck, right, if you're going to put convoke payoffs in, and I, I use that term very loosely, what is a convoke payoff? Mm. Basically just unctus so far, but maybe we'll think of something else that triggers when you become tapped or that pays you off for convoking things. This is going to be one of your cheapest options. Like the two mana throne? The two mana throne, yes. Well, there's I think there's another card in here. Maybe it's the commander. But there's a card that like draws a card when you convoke. I, I don't remember exactly what it is. Keep an eye on the referee squad. Looks silly, it looks very cute, but it might actually be good enough. And I'll probably be putting it into some, into some decks, to be honest. Hmm. Alright. Alright, that's it for one drops. On to the twos. On to the twos, we start with a new, with a new battle, but well, all battles are new. Invasion of Dark Gear. All of the battles, of course, are showing the fighting between... Um... <laughs> the, defend, the defendant forces and the invading Phyrexians in every single plane. In Tarkir, we are going to be focusing on dragons, etc. And in every plane, we're going to be seeing the defendant side against the coming Phyrexians. So here, Invasion of Tarkir, of course, it's going to be dragon travel base. One and a red for a five defense counter battle siege. Is that how we're going to name them? I mean, it doesn't make any sense more. It, it really... I like how you pause in your explanation because it actually does not make any sense mechanically. So the, like. <laughs> the, the problem is, if you're playing this and attacking them, it involves you considering yourself the Phyrexian attacking Tarkir because the upside you're getting is a Tarkir upside. Exactly. So flavor-wise, it's strange because why is my opponent defending this instead of the other way around? Exactly. They're the protector of the siege. What does that even mean? No, like, no, that <laughs> makes sense. That makes sense as long as we are assuming... So here comes my problem with invasions. I'm gonna... Expose my problem with battles right now. This set, Phyrexia should have won. Alright? In this set, Phyrexia should have won, and then we had another set where they lost. I don't care about that. This had to be Infinity War, not Endgame. Why did the battle set need to be Infinity War? Okay, that's easy. Because we're playing as Phyrexia when we invade. We invade, and we get a Phyrexia payoff. We shouldn't get Defiant Thunder Mode, which is the name of the dragon on the other side. We should get Corrupted Thunder Mode. We should get a Phyrexian payoff. We are Phyrexia opening defense, defense as a plane of its own, and we get a Phyrexian payoff. Right now we are attacking and getting a Defendant <laughs> payoff because that makes no sense. Why are we attacking and getting a payoff from the Defendant side when we are the one attacking? That makes no sense. I agree. All right. I agree. And the collective story that they're telling is that Phyrexia lost literally every single plane they invaded, which is... It's just sad when you think about it. All right, no, no. What, what was actually happening... No, that makes some sense from the point of the story because they were winning at the, all the... But the angels from... New, once New Capena won, the angels, the angels from there rallied against the other sides. Like, Phyrexia won most battles but lost them... But lost the war. Did they, though? How come it flips to a Tarkir-sided creature? I don't know. That's my <laughs> issue. That's my issue. <laughs> Can I also say on this subject, like, they butchered the English language here. Like, you do not defeat a battle. That does not make any sense. You win a battle, you lose a battle. You defeat a battle? You attack a siege? I mean, maybe a military historian will be like, oh, yes, well, technically, the people laying siege to the city have to build defensive fortifications around the city so that they don't get attacked from within the city. But that doesn't make any freaking sense, all right? You are laying siege. You are the attacker. It's exactly like Mord said. 
Hmm. This was just a massive, massive flavor. It's weird. Cluster. We'll just put it that way. <laughs> a cluster of flavor. All right. So one and rare for five loyalty, five defense counters battle. When Invasion of Trakir enters the battlefield, reveal any number of Kraken cards from your hand. When you do, it deals X damage plus 2 to any other target, where X is the number of cards revealed this way. X can be 0. So this is at worst a 2 mana shock as a sorcery to any target that able to up. This is a sorcery omen of the forge worst case scenario. But the payoff is actually quite amazing. It's a 4-4 flying trample that whenever a dragon you control attacks, it shocks any target. That's quite good. So it takes five damage to defeat the battle, but you get this amazing Defiant Thundermaw on the backside. Four, four flying trample that just lays waste to things and it wins as many battles as you want. This seems like one of the more playable battles. It's a mythic, naturally. Here's my question for you, Mort. Are you supposed to put this in a dragon's deck or are you supposed to be like, that's a trap. <laughs> we know the dragons suck. Let's just use this as a shock. And then when we're ready to, if we want to, we can defeat the battle with, uh, you know, that two and a black card you mentioned to unlock the Defiant Thundermaw. Technically, you don't need any dragons, right? Because X is allowed to be zero. You can just play this. As a bad shock. As a bad shock that maybe becomes a 4-4. I think for this to be playable, you actually need to be playing other dragons. I don't. I'm not saying you have to play this in complete aggro tri dragon tribal, but I think they actually a deck with some dragons, like some sort of mid range dragon deck. This doing three or four damage is already enough. And if you have one or two dragons on the board and this flips, attacking with two dragons and just assigning four points of damage as almost you desire is amazing. Not sure I agree with the Dragon Tribal thing, but it is worth noting that this is also probably the best battle for like the all battles deck because your invasion of Tarkir is allowed to target other battles, right? So you can just directly yeah. shoot. It can actually kill other copies of itself. And then the creature you get on the back side is so good at winning battles. I think this kills, this wins almost every battle we've seen, right? If you attack a battle with a Defiant Thundermall, point the extra shock at the battle, you, you probably win the battle immediately. Just using that spell, right, the two and a black, remove five, draw a card to unlock this creature and then just go nuts on your battle deck makes some sense to me. Yeah. I'm not saying this is going to see a lot of play, but if any of the lower cost one does, this at least seems like the one that should. Yeah, I think it's a card that I want to own four copies if they're cheap. Hmm. I, I don't know. We'll see how that goes. The next card on our list is also a battle. It's technically a two-drop, but it's not really a two-drop. Tell me about the Invasion of Ikoria. So, Finale of Devastation at home. Green, green, and an X or a six defense counter battle. When it enters the battlefield, search your library and or graveyard for a non-human creature card with mana value X or less and put it into the battlefield. So, same cost as Finale of Devastation, but with a non-human clause. However, if you get to flip it via dealing six damage, it transforms into an 8-8 with reach that gives your non-humans super trample. You can actually ignore, you can, they can assign damage as if they weren't blocked. So the backside is called Zilortha Apex of Ikoria. Zilortha was the Godzilla box topper. And unfortunately for this card, this is a legendary backside, which means you, you will kind of get punished if you try to play too many invasions. You can only flip one at a time because the backside is a legendary dinosaur. Hmm. However, this has combo written all over it, right? Yeah. What it cannot do is get Asmo. That's a big bummer. That's a bit sad. But what it can do is it can get 
Vampire Hexmage. That will cost you green, green, and two. You'll immediately get the Hexmage into play, and then whenever you want, you sack the Hexmage. It's not Dark Depths, but it is Godzilla, right? Godzilla's okay. He's not as good as Merit Lage. And it becomes that 8-8 reach. That itself is like still not quite worth it, right? Four mana for a giant creature is not worth it. But you get that flexibility too, right? Like if you're not ready to do that yet, you maybe just get a Dryad Arbor on turn two, or you get some one drop that you want on turn three. It searches the graveyard just like the green finale. So you, all you actually need is one Vampire Hexmage somewhere in the deck. And then that, in theory, can unlock all copies of Invasion of Ikoria that you draw throughout the game. Yeah. <laughs> but is that just too... I mean, we're just like lost in the sauce. We're just having fun and flipping battles and not actually winning the game. I don't know. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be great. Just a 4 mana 8 is not what you want to be doing nowadays in Magic. But maybe someday it is. I hope. Maybe. We can pray. So we move downwards, sadly abandoning battles as they weren't that much of something to love. But we go from a card that, as a few minutes ago, said maybe next to his name, and now it doesn't. So Dan, tell me about Botanical Roller. Green-white. Creature. Elemental Warrior. Zero-zero Trample and Botanical Brawler enters with two counters. So it's a 2-2 two -two Trample for green and a white. Whenever one or more plus one plus one counters are put on another permanent you control, if it's the first time plus one plus one counters have been put on that permanent this turn, put a plus one plus one counter on Botanical Brawler. So a really weird wording. It almost sounds like you can only do this once a turn, but that's not quite what it's saying. It's saying it will only trigger once per other thing you have that enters with counters. And specifically, it's only looking for plus one, plus one counters. So it's not going to trigger from a battle. Battles. It's not going to trigger from a planeswalker. It will trigger from like a hangerback walker or just any anything with graft or whatever. Some creature that you played that had a counter on it. That will grow your brawler. If you distribute plus one, plus one counters onto your creatures, the brawler will grow by one for each one that you see. So. I'm a little bit iffy on this. It seemed like to me that you would really need a hardened scales in play for this to be worth it. Oh yeah. David disagrees though. He's got some ideas for like turn one, you know, mana elf. Then you play a, a Nissa on turn two, Nissa voice of Venikar, And then you play this brawler and do the Nissa minus two and get all these counters because the Nissa <laughs> put counters on this plus your other two creatures, which grew this in turn. I'm not sure. I think it's like not, quite enough like if it grew off the nissa loyalty like if it could just grow from playing as planeswalker i'd be a little more optimistic so i'm gonna ask you a super tough question is this creature phyrexian or non-phyrexian oh boy I... i'm gonna say not because it doesn't have phyrexian in the subtype but look at the art it looks phyrexian but it looks like it's also destroying a phyrexian it synergizes with Incubate, so it also seems like it should be. <laughs> it sounds it sounds and seems so Phyrexian-like, but it isn't. It's, it's just weird. Like, it's off. Like, it triggers off Incubation tokens, so it, it seems like the perfect candidate for Phyrexianization. Yeah. I'm gonna go back and say, I do love the design of battles, even if I don't love the flavor of them. I love the design, and I think it's something that actually I really like. I think it's making combat matter for non-agro decks is, I think, super relevant. And I think it's intriguing the way they're doing it. Maybe flavorfully they belonged in another order, 
or the payoff should have been a Phyrexian payoff because they are like fighting back, but that's another issue. Sometimes it, it takes a failed hardened skills to drop to make you realize how much you love battles. <laughs> like, you know what? I do like battles after all, because they're not the botanical brawler. Because they could be as worse as the botanical brawler, but they are not. <laughs> well, if that's the case, let's talk about a battle. Here's the one that I actually think is pretty cool. It's a gruel battle called Invasion of Ergamon. What's Ergamon? I've never heard of this place. Ergamon, if I'm not mistaken, is the plane where... Who goes to Ergamon? I don't... I think Ergamon might never exist. Like, besides... <laughs> so, there was a lot of planes that were involved in Plane Chase 2012 for the first time. Okay. And it always involved the fighting between Chublin's workers named as Warsaw and Tomil as they battle through the planes. Hmm. So, yeah, we have a new, lot of new planes we have never seen. A few we have barely seen and we're looking back again, which I love. And I hope we get to mention some of them. But, yeah, a lot of them, this is going to be the first time for most players. There's, for example, the invasion of Segovia, which is the tiny plane, which I love. All right, so Ergamon, beloved callback to Plane Chase 2012. Yes. Red and a green, battle siege with five defense. Cheap to cast, but difficult to defeat. When Invasion of Ergamon enters the battlefield, create a treasure token. We like those. Then you may discard a card if you do draw a card. The best game object. You get a game object and a rummage. You get everything that I like. Game objects and moving cards between zones. What's not to love? Exactly. How much is that front side worth, would you say? No, that's worth two mana. Like, it, that value at one mana would be completely insane. At two mana, it may be, like, slightly overcosted, but, like, in the same way a lot of cards are a bit weak on two mana, but at one would be completely insane, right? I think that's, yeah, it had to cost two now that you put it that way. I don't know if it's worth two. This couldn't cost one couldn't cost one i think it's cost a lot more than one but a bit less than two so just by itself the front side i mean it gives you that game object the treasure it gives you that rummage it sets up something like i don't know zombify or something on turn three or you know it just ramps you to into something else on turn four the backside though the backside it's a three four rhino it's called Truga Cliff Charger. So again, this invasion has five defense. So if you actually, if you want the Rhino, you got to deal five to this invasion. Hmm. Three, four trample. When Truga Cliff Charger enters a battlefield, you may discard a card. If you do, search your library for a land or battle. Reveal it, put it into your hand. Shuffle. Yeah. So it's another rummage effect. It tutors for a battle. Or any land. So it seems like it's telling me to like just get another copy of the invasion right instead of killing them i will just make boars or not boars rhinos it looks like a boar i don't know why this is a rhino because it has a horn yes what is a rhino but a big boar with a horn in the front <laughs> now more importantly it has no fur in on the sides you know like rhino has like that porous skin like an elephant and that has that sort of skin rather than the fur of a bird of a boar to me, this looks exactly like Pumbaa from The Lion King. But Pumbaa has hair on the sides. This has hair. He's got Not the hair, the he's got the spotted pattern. This is obviously Pumbaa. On the sides, you have skin. Pumbaa has hair. Pumbaa has fur. But so does the Truga Cliff Card. <laughs> look, at the, look at those skinny legs. 
Kermit Flakes. <laughs> Not even a Brazilian can get you those results. So they previewed this alongside another two drop that I think is meant to play exactly with it. So let's also look at the Blood Feather Phoenix. Tell me about this card board. So one array for a 2-2 creature Phoenix with flying. The Blood Feather Phoenix can't block, and whenever an instant or sorcerer you control deals damage to an opponent or battle, you may pay red. If you do, it returns from the graveyard to the battlefield with haste. So a super annoying 2-2 flyer that can get back with haste whenever you ping your opponent or anything. 2-2 flying that cannot block, right? Its sole purpose in life is to harry planeswalkers, to chip away at life totals, to win battles. And get sacrifice, I guess, if you want to do that, but it's actually kind of annoying to bring this back, right? You have to point an instance of sorcery spell at an opponent, which... Or battle. Or battle. So it's really encouraging you to, like, deal damage directly to battles and then bring this back with haste. It's better coming back from the graveyard because it has haste. The front yeah. side does not have haste. Okay, so now imagine this Bloodfeather Phoenix together with the invasion that we just talked about, Invasion of Urgamon. You get to load it away with Invasion, you get an incentive to use a Bolt on the Invasion, and you actually get a treasure to wait for a raid. Turn one, Lavadar to your opponent's Ragavan, turn two, Invasion, make a treasure. Um, discard Phoenix, Lavadar to your opponent, get this back with the treasure. Concede. Well, <laughs> I mean, if we're going directly to Modern, then yeah, the bar is going to be high. I think it's more like, <laughs> it gives you the option to just like chain Invasion of Orgamons together. Yeah. I don't know if you should, uh, but you probably also play Invasion of Tarkir in the same deck. <laughs> it's interesting, for sure. It's at least worth to look into, I think. It's not bad. All right, and with that, we go on to the three drops. We go on to the three drops, and we start with one you absolutely at least show Twitter that you love. It's all about the content, baby. <laughs> so we have Ren and Railbreaker. Also, rest in peace, Ren. She gave her life for the cause. One of the few Blinkwalkers have actually died. But at least we got a sweet one mana, one and double green, so three mana legendary Blinkwalker, Ren. Enters with four loyalty counters and has the passive ability. Lands you control tap at any one color of mana, so it gives you that chromatic lantern effect. Alongside a plus one, that up to one target land you control becomes a 3 3 elemental creature with vigilance, hexproof, and haste until your next turn. It's still a land. Minus two with three cards, you may put a permanent card from among them into your hand. Minus seven, you get an emblem with you may play lands and cast permanent spells from your graveyard. So the most important thing to understand is the plus one does not untap the land. I think yeah. most people just read that and assumed that it did. It would be insane if it did. It would be insane. That would be mana ramp. That would be a, like a haste attacker on turn three. You can do all that on turn four if you want to. So that raises the question, where is the power of this card and why did I write a gigantic Twitter thread about it? I refer you to our Twitter feed. We're at FaithlessMPG. Give us a follow. Why not? I went through a bunch of decks in Pioneer that I thought might be able to make use of the card or at least should consider playing it. But where I landed was that it's, it's really all about the minus two. The minus two doesn't seem that powerful at first glance, but you can do it twice, right? So if you're thinking of this as maybe it's similar to the minus two on Liliana of The Last Hope, but she only does it once, right? She can't immediately downtick twice, whereas Ren and Realmbreaker can do that. And if that's the case, it's actually on rate with a lot of other draw spells that people play. I don't 
I actually really like this as a fair card. Even, even if you're not going for a minus two to ice, I really appreciate that they finally went ahead and make this sort of effect with Hexproof on the land. So that's the other thing, right? A Hexproof land is actually a combo piece, specifically in Pioneer, less so yeah. in Modern. Not so in Modern, but a 3-3 with Hexproof in Modern is actually a good way to protect that Blitzwalker, right? You just keep the, you swing for three with Vigilance and just let it stay there, blocking Ragavans, blocking anything. It's a decent brawler. I, I don't want to like risk a land in combat for sure, but if I'm going to combo, right, there's two commonly played combos in Pioneer. I take that back. There's one commonly played combo and one retired combo. Transmogrify combo. This deck is like pretty good. It's like tier two, tier two and a half. But the problem with Transmogrify is that you just you just can't cast it if they have mana open. Like they will just fatal push your thing. You will be very sad and you won't get your Atraxa. If you have a hexproof creature land, suddenly like the entire equation is flipped on its head. Now it's like almost guaranteed to resolve. Second deck is Jeskai Ascendancy, where you'll find them for sure playing Sylvan Carriages. We're not cutting those, but they'll often play something like uh, Paradise Druid, right? The kind of crappy 2-1 Hexproof. Again, Red and Rollerbreaker is like, okay, there's your Paradise Druid, but it's also a dig-through time, and it also fuels your dig-through time. Hmm. I think it's super interesting. Either you play this as a minus two, minus two, or a plus one, plus one, plus one, minus two, plus one, minus two. It has a lot of combination for it. It's just amazing. I think the passive is, a, is really meh. Not quite so in Pioneer. Yeah, the passive sucks. Yeah. In Pioneer, it might be a lot more relevant than in any other format. But I don't hate it at all. It's just good and efficient. So decks that I listed as possibilities abzan grease fang where this is kind of like a grizzly salvage with upside uh you can put it into your mono green deck you know elephant of ren is gonna dig you towards your combo pieces very quickly and again you don't have to kill it you can go minus two plus one minus two just like mortis saying you might consider this just in like red green boats in the vehicles deck it's it's a on curve threat it threatens to find your chariots and good stuff faster it could go into green black mid-range i mentioned the transmogrify combos already could go into a graveyard deck, right? It, it's a great way to fill the graveyard. So there's a lot of potential homes. The problem is that, like, in all these scenarios, the mana's a little tricky. Green, green one kind of sucks, and you, you really don't want to play this if you're behind because there's always that fail state that you'll just minus two once and it will die. That's true for all Planeswalkers. If you can only activate them once before they die, yeah, they're not good. So then it's like, okay, well, what do I do? I play it and I plus... I take a hit and then I just sort of use it as this weird hexproof land until I'm ready to turn the corner. That's okay. It's not the worst. I mean, it's an interesting card for sure. Very interesting card. Yeah, I like it. To the very least, to say it will require some testing in multiple formats. But with that being said, I think we're reaching the end of our time. Am I right? I think so. Yeah. I think we're going to have to cut it here with Ren and Realmbreaker. I definitely re refer you to our Twitter page for more hype on the card. It's a strong card to finish so far. I'm glad to say I don't even think it's the best card in the set. Like, I'm super glad for a lot of cards that are coming that you will be able to hear in the next episode. Chrome Host Seed Shark, I know it has you and David Unlock. Halo Forager is something I love as a concept. And not even get me talking about what's the name of this card that I love for absolutely no logical reason. Oh, Invasion of Ravnica. So, we will leave it here. We will be back in just a few days for part two of our set review. So stay tuned for that, and we'll see you next time. Of course, have a lovely night, everybody. Bye-bye. See you then.
this concludes part one of our Brewer's Guide to March of the Machine. Tune in next time for part two of our full set review for Modern and Pioneer. If you enjoyed this podcast, please let us know. Leave us a review in your podcast app and visit patreon.com slash faithlessbrewing to join our Discord community and help support the show. That's all for today. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.